0: Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we all share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher and I have a great session for you in this week's episode, so let's jump right in. Are you looking for the best resources to help you build a regenerative lifestyle? New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 30 years. They publish good news and solutions for individuals and organizations seeking to change their lives so that they may change the world for the better. Their company mandate goes far beyond the single bottom line of profit. They care deeply not only about what they publish, but also how they do business. They believe in the authors that they take on and the works that they bring to the marketplace. From sustainable living to progressive parenting, New Society Publishers has the books you need to help build a better world. Buy your print and eBooks online at www.newsociety.com or at fine bookstores near you. All right. Hello and welcome everybody to this very special episode of the Regenerative Roundtable. Uh, we don't have all of our normal speakers. Neil is still here. We can't get rid of him. But Jeremy's gone back to the States. He's driving the bus back up and he's got some work to do up there. So instead, we're joined by two of our good friends who were recently interviewed on the podcast actually two weeks ago for their business La Botica Verde. Um, Michelle and Juliana, would you like to say hi?
1: Hello, hello.
2: We're happy to be back. Hi, thanks for having us.
0: All right, so let's get into it. Uh, I know we've all been working on some really fun projects lately. Neil I'm going to hit you up first. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what's been going on at our Homestead model and then we'll pass it around and talk a little bit about what's coming up as well.
3: Cool. Uh, Hi everybody and uh, it's great to be here with Michelle and and Julie. (laughs) It's such a huge improvement from the normal company we keep with Jeremy. (laughs) Sorry, Jeremy. <laughs> but objectively speaking, this is just a better looking round table. Um, so, uh, yeah, what are we doing? Well, we're trying to get our house finished. Uh, we're sort of nearly there, um, or at least we're nearly ready to move into it. But we've had a lot of volunteers this week, so this, this last week on by, which is great. Um, And we've been working a lot on our sort of composting animal system. So putting in a a nice chicken run in the center of the property below the goat house and kind of really thinking about a, a sort of cheap and nice looking way of doing it so that we can have happy chickens and be able to send them to different areas of the farm and just to have, I kind of see it like setting up the stomach of the farm. That's what, you know, I kind of look at a farm or anything that I'm designing kind of like the way a body works it has all these individual pieces to it but sort of where the animals reside is that's where all of your your material just gets broken down and recycled and then worked back into the land so it's pretty fun at the moment we're putting it right below the goat house so that the we can empty the goat manure down into the chicken house and then we've got like a several tiered um, terrace system so that will eventually come out of there as like really nice bokashi and then also have Happy animals, uh, good products. So that's what we've been working on a lot and that's a lot of fun.
0: What have we got coming up in the next month before we check back in?
3: In the next month before we check back in, um, well, apart from finishing that, I'm really hoping that when we check back in, I'll be in our house (laughs) Uh, so that's like taking up a huge amount of time uh, of course we've got a course coming up in a couple of weeks uh, an introduction to permaculture course and um the big thing i want to get done in the next couple of weeks is get a lot of trees planted a lot of trees in our nursery we're just starting to ramp up and i guess the thing to bear in mind about you know reforestation and and, and all this is that planting vegetables is one thing but planting trees you got to start like a year ahead of when you want to plant them and we want to be planting most of our fruit trees when we come around to this time next year because we got a lot of earthworks to do on the rest of our property and the places we want to put in our our food forests and our agroforestry systems and we can't just go and move a load of earth before heavy rains so what we're going to do is start tons and tons of seeds, get them to the size where we can graft if we decide to graft. So we'll do a mixture of grafted fruit trees and, and fruit trees propagated from seed and have a big amount of stuff ready to go into the ground in 12 months time when the next sets of rains are coming. So that's going to be uh, that's gonna be a big project. And I feel very passionate about it because um, there's just, where we live in Sunu now, there's just everywhere in Guatemala really, there's just all these amazing varieties of fruits and niche things that you don't really find anywhere um, so for me it's really cool to be like getting to work on, on propagating those and I would that's what I love to see like every area having its own nursery and seed bank of things that just really do well in that area you know
0: yeah absolutely there's a lot of fun things coming up um Julie and Michelle, could you, for people who didn't catch the last episode where we interviewed you about your business, could you fill them in a little bit about what you do and talk a little bit about some of the projects that you're working on at the moment and what's coming up in in this rainy season and how that sort of affects the uh, the supply flow of some of the foods that you guys distribute.
1: La Botica Verde is this really exciting project that helps small farmers find better markets and, and access to to new new selling points through us in the capital in Guatemala City and Antigua and San Marcos. And well this rainy season is going to be really exciting because we've been working a lot with the producers on planning the, um, the rotational systems and also to project how much it is that we're going to be buying in these next few months. We've been working on this for at least three to four months, which means that everything is going to be going into production right now. Um, and we're getting a lot of new products like malanga is new. We're going to get passion fruit. We're going um, sweet corn, uh string beans I mean, there's so many things that are that are coming it's super exciting
3: you mean all stuff that does well here in the rainy season right
1: we're gonna actually keep producing everything that we commonly produce throughout the rainy season and the methods that i'm trying to experiment with so that we don't have a lot of of um, problems with with fungi is obviously mulching with with um straw so that the the soil doesn't bounce back up into the leaves and damage the, the leaves. and um...
3: Just for people who don't know, it's it's an interesting one here, right? Because we have a 12-month growing season, but two very distinct, because you have six months of heavy, heavy rains and six months of, of, of drought, basically. And conversely, the six months of drought, if you have irrigation, is much easier to produce, kind of like what we call vegetables salads things I guess people are used to seeing in their basket of organic products right so is that is it a little bit difficult to manage client expectations as the seasons change
1: it has been absolutely it definitely has been a challenge because in the in the dry season things tend to get a little bit smaller and and the wilting is accelerated because things have less moisture moisture in them when you when you cut them Um Alternatively, in the, in the rainy season, we have more fungi problems and um, there is definitely variability. But luckily, the farmers that we're working with are brilliant and, and they're definitely creative and, and find solutions to these problems. And we're, we're there to help them along the way as well.
3: Yeah, and I imagine that's a big part of where your sort of expertise and skill set comes in in, like, in, in in being able to provide technical assistance to your producers, right?
1: Yeah, definitely. Both Michelle and I have have done uh, a few workshops with them. The one that Michelle did on how to harvest in a hygienic way actually was instrumental to to becoming a, a more consistent, high-quality product.
0: Yeah, Michelle, that's fantastic. Can you uh, explain a little bit more about how that workshop went and some of the results that you've seen from it since?
2: Sure. <laughs> um, so, what we focused on was a post-harvest workshop, and we taught producers how to harvest things hygienically. So, like using things like tools, um, having clean fingernails, things like that that can that can actually damage the product after it's been harvested, and they and it leads to loss. So, um, yeah, those are some of the things. Ah, uh, bueno, see, we also. We also covered how to use, uh, instead of baskets, because people use like woven baskets here, uh, and that can damage the product very quickly because it has a lot of sharp edges. So using, um, smooth boxes or como se dicen guacales. Yeah, plastic tubs that um, that have smooth surfaces and then people can use that to transport the goods and also um, how to arrange the goods inside the boxes or these uh, these smooth con- uh, smooth containers uh, is super important in reducing post-harvest loss.
0: Alright, so Julie, why don't you tell me about some of the projects that you have coming up? I know there's a myriad... Of different things that you're exploring with the business, um, go ahead and explain some of the exciting things that are, are coming in the in the upcoming months.
1: One of the things we're most excited about right now is that we finally moved into our our new warehouse, and we're developing the warehouse to be as functional as possible so that the the flow is really efficient. And there's there's one area where we're we're creating a wash station that's going to have You know the surface where we receive the vegetables, and then the the stainless steel tubs, and then a drying rack with fans that I that I researched on (laughs) on YouTube, and actually works super well apparently.
3: Oh, like a dry like for drying the salads and all that stuff, but using airflow. Yeah, have you tried that before? No, but it's a great (laughs) idea. I really like. I'm just sorry to cut you off, but I think it's so cool the way you mentioned like designing even the warehouse with energetic flows in mind. Like that's such important thing to get that like these sort of permaculture or holistic design techniques you can apply them to every area of your business and your life right and that's i feel like such a great asset botica verde have having you working there
1: (laughs) spoken as a true permaculturist there neil well actually just um
2: going off of that point that you just mentioned one of the really cool things about how we design where our products are coming from we see guatemala as a big um, one big farm, let's say, and we see our zone zero as everything around where the warehouse is. Our zone one is a little bit after that. Our zone two is a little bit further away. So even the products that we're sourcing, we see it as coming from zone zero, zone one, zone two, and then the things that are uh, more perishable quickly come from nearby. So we, we apply permaculture principles even to that.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I know from my own experience in working in farms, like that's kind of the linchpin as to whether you can remain profitable, viable as a business. Because you may be able to create a very healthy ecosystem that produces a lot of food, but if you can't process that into something that actually makes it to market, you're not going to be able to make any money off the harvest. And so, like you talked about Um, finding good flows in the energy patterns and making sure that the efficiency is worked into that can definitely be a complete game changer for producers uh, in in being able to get their products at a high quality out to people who are going to be consuming them.
1: Another really exciting thing that we're working on is that behind the warehouse there's a huge open empty lot and we're we're merging two big projects that that we've had in mind for a long time. We have a nursery made out of bamboo that's going up right now. I, you should come check it out. It is so beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Can't wait. <laughs> it's extraordinary. I'll I'll hook you up with Javier, the the young man who's who's done them before and is working on ours. And in front of that we're gonna have demonstrative De- is that a word? Demonstrative plots <laughs> that have, um, that have all the different cultivars that we're interested in exploring and different techniques that we've seen along the years that are, that work really well. For example, activated carbon mixed with worm compost and bioles or fermented um, fermented oxygenated fertilizers that we make on site and we're also working with this new product called ceolita have you heard of have you heard of that
3: no Seolita. no yeah.
1: it's actually they they ship it in from cuba and it's what helped the cubans overcome well one of the techniques that they used to overcome that crisis that they had when they never when they didn't have access to to synthetic fertilizers anymore
3: which fyi is a crisis we should all learn how to uh deal with ourselves because we that day may arrive for all of us very soon so learning from the cubans is a great idea i think
1: Absolutely. Their methods in agriculture are spectacular. I mean, creative and, and insightful and wonderful. And this, this product, Seolita, what it does, it's an aluminosilicate and it captures the fertilizers at an, at an ionic level between the strata of the aluminum and the silicates. And, and then the roots are the only way that, that fertilizer can come back out so none of it is leached into waterways which is really really cool
0: that's fantastic because i know that's a huge problem especially in these rainy seasons where all of a sudden you get huge inundations of water you can very quickly lose the fertility of your soil if it's not bound by something either chemically or through proper uh, landscape management so that it doesn't just fall
3: off the site it's so cool it really seems like your your business is like Going to the next level, especially when you're like talking about having this demonstrative site, uh, getting a nursery going. One question I have like on a kind of specific thing about technique is it always occurs to me when I see uh, producers of annual crops here in this in this zone um, that very few people use what we call alley cropping, you know, the planting of like leguminous um, trees perennials on contour so that they can like both prevent erosion and also like produce biomass and you know and there's there i do see it being used by permaculture but usually just kind of gringos who have like a permaculture farm sort of like we do um i'm curious is it something that you've like thought about or, or thought about like introducing to your to your farmers
1: we haven't talked about introducing them on on contours but we have talked a lot about introducing different varieties into the um, into the edges because we want to have buffer zones between neighbors and the plots that our producers have to minimize the, um, the movement of, of agrochemicals that mm. we don't want you know.
3: I mean it's such a great technique these alley croppings you know you just plant lines of legumes, on contour if it's steep land or not if it's not and they do so many things because just like you say they block kind of waste products coming into your land they produce windbreaks so they stop your soil getting desiccated uh they produce mulch to cover your soil during the especially during the rainy season it's like such an i think an appropriate technique for this uh for this climate you know but one that i so rarely see being used
1: that's awesome. That's a great recommendation. Thank you so much. Are there specific species that you have in mind that you think would do well at, like, 1,000 to 2,000 meters? Well,
3: definitely, like, the most popular one is Inga, or, or Cushin, as they call it here, you know. Um, but I think just about anything, Madre Cacao does really well Um really anywhere from about 500 meters to 1500 meters and just about everywhere you go there's like fast growing legumes that are really really useful for this kind of technique and i think it could be a real and the great thing about them is they also double up as 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 forage for animals you know if you decide to incorporate animals into your into your system so it's it's definitely a technique that i have a lot of have a lot of mass in that i'd love to see get um you know Look, there's all kinds of things that I think Botica Verde and Abundant Edge are going to collaborate on and sort of just like this thing of like bouncing ideas around. I'd never heard of, uh, what did you call that thing from Q? Zeolita. I'd never heard of it, you know, and it's like every time we have one of these conversations, just like new ideas and new ways of sort of improving what we're doing kind of come around, you know, because one of the things I really think about is like both Abundant Edge and La Botica Verde, they're both businesses right so we both have to have keep our eye on the ball in terms of business but I think the thing for both of us is we're very passionate about permaculture and ecology as a movement right so it's it's all about trying to help each other to to improve what we do yeah
0: yeah I'm really glad you brought that up Neil because that's one of the aspects that you know a lot of ecologically focused businesses still struggle with and in fact you know we don't have all the answers but it's one of the things that i love chatting with these two about especially because they've focused on that appropriately and have used it as a business model that could be replicated in so many places now michelle i know you mostly take care of the commercial and the business side of this operation can you tell me some of the things that you've done recently or found success in in order to help reach a larger audience and uh kind of increase the market, especially here in Guatemala where or, uh, access to organic goods and, <clears throat> and high-quality food is not nearly the movement that it is in, say, the United States or Europe.
2: Sure. Um, I can talk a little bit about also what our focus is with the business. So we have a demand-driven approach um, to the way that we do business, and that means that essentially we want to know what the market wants to buy before the producer starts producing it. Uh, And we do that very intentionally because right now, like I mentioned before, a lot of pre-harvest food waste. And a big reason of why that happens is because the farmers don't know in advance what the market's going to want to buy. So by adopting a demand-driven approach, what we do is we work with the farmers to say, for example, on average, how much broccoli does a person buy every week, you know, and then we can use projections and say, okay, well, right now, you know, we're producing, we, we're selling, let's say, 25 broccolis or to 25 people, um, and by next month, we want to get to 30, you know, so... Uh, that's where Julie comes in. She works with the farmers, helping them uh, to do their their planning, their monthly planning or trimestral planning, so that we can reduce the amount of food waste that there is that that is generated um, by having the farmers know in advance how much they will need to produce so that is that is one key element of our business that i think uh, has helped us be really successful both on the with the clients and with the producers because you know less food waste also means less money wasted for the farmers less time wasted uh, so it is the most efficient way to do agriculture is by knowing in advance what's going to get bought
0: I think that's a remarkable approach. I've talked with a lot of small producers and permaculture farms from all over the world and I know that's one of the challenges that they have is they have to do that sort of research among their clientele themselves. And not everyone's equipped to do it. Not everyone has time to kind of take those metrics and make the predictions for the future to uh, to cut down on the food waste that, that would come from not having a market to buy their perishable stock. Um... But I think it's fantastic, this business model of being able to create those metrics for your producers so that they don't have to have that as an aspect of their business and can focus on their production models and the health of their ecosystems. Um, And I can only imagine that as you do business for longer, those metrics will improve and you'll be able to make more accurate predictions within the seasons. Now, Neil, I know we do kind of a similar thing, especially because where we live, although we're not large producers by any means, it's not really the point of what we're trying to show we do have a fluctuation between the tourist seasons when a lot of people are coming and buying our goat dairy products the products from our market garden and such we need to be able to meet the demand for things that we know that they're going to be buying Um, on the flip side of that as we talked about actually in the last regenerative roundtable we're going now into the low season for tourism and when all the rain comes so we needed to plant appropriately and most of the the crops that we have currently in the market garden are for our own consumption and mature a lot slower however don't face the risks as many like salads and annuals do from the heavy rains Um, would you like to talk a little bit about how we've planned for that and maybe some of the parallels if someone were running a higher production business some of the things that they could think about in order to anticipate the fluctuations in the market
3: yeah i mean it's it's all this thing about design from from patterns to details right the the most overriding pattern that you're you're presented with here in guatemala is the two seasons you know right it's actually four um but kind of practically speaking it's two it's that heavy rains for six months and then and then a drought for six months and the drought for us is also Busy season. It's a super nice time for people to visit Guatemala. There's less bugs, clear night skies, and it's winter in Europe and the States. So, and where we live is such a beautiful area that tourists flock there. Um, so, you know, one way we do that, for example, is goats are just so ecologically and uh, such an ecologically appropriate way of producing food uh, and manure. Um, for us, so we we're we're trying to get the goats pregnant now, so that their milk will drop off during the during the rainy season, and that they'll be giving birth, um, and we can wean them in time for the for the high season again. You know, that's a good strategy, but it's still not ideal because you know. Keeping animals is is tricky, and there's there's constant costs associated with it. So having no production for four months is is not ideal. But it's also very hard to stagger a process like that. You introduce a macho, a male goat into your into your herd, and he's gonna want to have his fun with all the females. You know that's the way it goes. So actually, ideally, the more I look at this kind of permaculture stuff, the more um, it jumps out at me that kind of communities and cooperatives are so so important because um you know having multiple houses multiple places where where you can where you can put the animals is is so important um and and then likewise having multiple producers working together um so that you know, so the crops can be rotated. You know, that's such a basic thing. You you can't, it's not a good idea to plant the same crops on your, on your land all the time. Ideally, actually, I think the way, you know, and Julie, you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I think, you know, indigenous people largely did do slash and burn agriculture here where they let their parcels go fallow and and let the, the forest eat it up again. Um, while they would then burn you know different sections of it down you don't see any of that kind of joined up thinking now and the sort of stuff that michelle talked about where projections are being made really if you go around guatemala now, that we're coming just into rainy season everywhere is just naked it's all denuded hillsides and probably a mixture of about the same three or four crops are going to be planted on all of that land which is a Economically, for the producers who are breaking their backs to do all this work, this is a disaster, no? Because they all then harvest their stuff at the same time, and the market gets flooded with corn, cabbage, uh, beans, and you know whatever else. And it's barely worth the the time to do it, right? So, ideally, every group of small producers would kind of have an operation like Michelle and Julie looking after planning and logistics and and economics would be (laughs) would be fantastic you know
0: yeah i like how you mentioned um the potential benefits for cooperative uh farming and organizations that help to build resilience within the business model now between you julian um michelle can you talk a little bit about how you've facilitated connections between your producers and also your buyers in order to build resilience into the economic model of what can be otherwise quite a fragile um, economic endeavor, which is producing food and is at the whim of fluctuations in the climate, in the weather patterns. And I mean, quite frankly, here you can have situations where the road goes out during the rainy season due to landslides and other types of factors like that, which could, you know, completely destroy a perishable crop. Uh, What are some of the techniques or uh, organizations that you help to facilitate through your business?
1: Jeremy, quite honestly, we haven't built in that resistance or resilience yet. And that's definitely something that we'd like to do. Right now, we haven't found enough farmers to really have as a plan A, plan B, plan C strategy. But what, we, what we're what we interested in doing and what we have done with the workshops and, and other small meetings that we have with our producers is helping them connect between each other you know so for example one of our producers has incredible food concentrate for chickens and he makes it himself and it's it's all traceable really high quality products
3: whoa what's he using that's cool i want to i want to buy that
1: you do want to buy that. It is the most amazing concentrate I've ever seen. He makes it out of...
3: Sorry to cut you off. FYI, I think a lot of the thing people don't realize about raising chickens is it can. it's such a nice way to get started producing your own food and compost and all the rest of it. But unless you have a good supplier of of concentrates, your chickens are not going to produce without a big input of sort of annual grains. Most of which are produced really really ecologically irresponsibly right so even though you think you're sort of taking the step towards sustainability, it can actually be quite disheartening when you when you look at the inputs right yeah,
1: yeah definitely years ago i was I was building um a chicken coop for one of my clients and I remember just spending weeks researching how to make the proper concentrate and and what are the, the mixtures that you need and it's actually really complex I mean it's definitely something that you need to learn about and I never figured it out right. I was never able I mean, to do it
3: I think protein and calcium are two of the main things but there's also a whole load of trace elements that they need to be kind of productive and healthy right
1: Definitely, yeah. You can you can put in herbs, and you can put in like for example, curcuma, turmeric. You can put in flax to raise your omega levels, but you can't pass it above you know like a, a three or five percent because then you damage the chicken, and it's it's super interesting. But um, I'll just of go course, into
3: access to fresh ground is also like key because then they can just sort of look after their own needs by by foraging, but that's also not always easy to do.
1: Yeah, not everyone has access to open pastures where the chickens can be, you know. And that, that's something that, thinking about the Inga, I mean, perhaps if it was really well pruned, you have to think that these are small producers that we're working with, so they don't have massive amounts of land where they can just leave trees grow between the their crop s- systems. But going back to the chickens, what he uses, his name's Jose Lopez, he's fantastic, I'll give you his contact. And he, what he uses is... Um, a mixture of, of local, um, this local tree that grows in the dry areas in Sacapa and really high quality superfoods like Ramon and Moringa. Um, yeah, but definitely I'll, I'll get you in touch with, with him. And for example, we're contacting him with another two producers who are also interested in producing, um, chicken for, for chicken breast and, and just meat. Um, our, our producer, Juan, we're connecting with another producer that has a seolita because they have two methods that could mix, mix well really interestingly. Um, so this is the kind of connections that we're, that we're facilitating, but we, that's not a real, like, resilience method you know that's we haven't gone to that point yet but we are connecting farmers to each other to to share their experiences and to give each other information and backup when they need it and that's something that michelle and i value a lot and we've talked about it a lot of creating whole uh, regional networks of organic producers so that you don't feel alone and you know that there's someone to hold your hand when you need it you know and that's definitely something we value
3: And so that each person can specialize because not everyone can produce their own animal feed, look after animals, tend to crops, make their own high quality like bokashi compost, keep a seed bank, keep a nursery. There's so many elements to a successful farm. Unless you have a huge budget and a lot of land, then it makes more sense for different people to specialize sort of within a, a, a cooperative, right?
1: Yeah, kind of sort of. One of the things that we're trying to do is, is the vivero, the nursery where we're going to have access to seeds, different fertilizer options, um, have the seedlings so that people can just come in by their seedlings and go straight into planting, and that will facilitate their, their seasonal plantings a lot.
0: I'm really glad that you both um, mentioned... Specializing within an agricultural system because like you said, especially for small producers, it's not practical to be producing so many different things and that leads really well into the topic that we're kind of going to focus on for the rest of this episode. Normally, we do listener questions and I'm just going to consolidate them now into uh, A topic that a lot of people have asked little bits around but we'll just kind of cover broadly here and that's the idea of the difference between food sovereignty and food security. So Neil can you start us off a little bit about the difference between the two uh, the pros and cons as you see them and we'll sort of analyze them in different contexts and see how that goes. Um,
3: I say food sovereignty um, but you know, so, oh, but I'm not sure if I'm right about that. It's a tricky one to pronounce. Um, it's this is an interesting topic, right? I think everyone has heard the term food security. Not that many people have heard the term food sovereignty, right? So, um, and they're quite conflicting. Uh, a food security literally just means people have enough a, a supply of f- carbohydrates and grains to you know, get them through a year or whatever. I can't actually remember the exact definition for it. But the problem with it is in trying to increase their food security, a lot of countries, particularly poor countries, have started to import huge amounts of food. Um, So you have this, like, bizarre situation in Guatemala where even though Everybody, this is where corn was first domesticated. Uh, Guatemala imports a huge percentage of its own corn. And it's large four times more than four times what they what they, uh, consume or produce. We import four times the amount of
2: corn that we produce. We import four times the amount of corn that we produce locally.
3: Yeah, that's like a staggering uh, statistic, right? And that's mostly uh, mostly comes from the states, right? It's like mass-produced, mechanized, industrialized, subsidized corn production, and it gets dumped down here in the name of boosting uh, food security, right?
1: Is that used for animal feed or for for processing in in kind of tortrix facilities, or what is it for?
3: That's a good question. I don't know.
2: So it can be c- consumed for different things, but the the statistic is we import four times as much corn as we consume and consumption can be yeah, we import we import four times as much corn as we produce yeah, produce um, and and consumption of that corn varies, but a lot of it I, I don't know the percentage, but a big percentage of it is for individual consumption yeah. And one, can I add one thing um about fortified foods? I think when you're talking about uh, food security, one of the main things to mention is you were saying a lot of the food, it causes countries to import a lot of the food to address food security. I think one of the issues also is with fortified foods, right, to address uh, chronic uh, child malnutrition and things like that. So if you want to address chronic child malnutrition uh, through importing foods, ah! You can't just go in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead, I don't know what I'm No, no, keep going. I think you just. I think. I think you just have to talk about like how these imported foods are used f- to make fortified foods to address malnutrition as well.
3: Yeah, and so, kind of understandably, this idea of of food security got very. Um, Tiring for people, and groups like um, Via Campesina started to use much more the term food sovereignty, which they defined as the rights of a people. Just look this up because I want to get
1: the temperature. Is it the rights of a of a people to produce their own food? Good, uh, to have access to produce, to have to produce and to have access to their own food sources that will be enough. And more than enough to fulfill all their dietary needs. That's food sovereignty, where they're independent within their own community to produce yeah, their own.
3: Yeah. So here, did Via Campesina defined it? define it as um the right of the people who produce distribute and consume food should control the mechanisms and policies of food production and distribution rather than the corporations and market institutions they believe have come to dominate the global food system right so this term is quite politically laden um but i have a lot of of sympathy with the with let's say the perspective uh, at hand here because um, we touched on this in the last interview julie guatemala is in this like bizarre situation where it it really is you can look at the whole country like a, a great big farm and there's all these amazing things like moringa and coconuts and mangoes and vegetables and just about everything grows here and yet you have this bizarre situation where the people who spend their time producing all these foods often have very high levels of, of malnutrition right so kind of like addressing this idea of food sovereignty kind of goes right to the heart of this huh
1: It does and and there's something really particular and bothersome about the situation for me because from my point of view yes they have they have access to really high high nutritious value content or highly nutritious, food sources for example purslane growing in the fields like a weed you know they have we have chilka for if we have medicinal problems we have um, bledo which is like the leaves of the amaranth plant uh, we have all these these incredible food sources
3: and you just all the things you mentioned there are like one of a handful of what's actually hundreds of kind of like edible weeds that you don't even really need to cultivate in a lot of situations, things that just proliferate probably in, in forests or in meadows. So, you know, you're you're almost surrounded by these things.
1: Exactly. So it's not that there is a lack of high-quality food. that's not the problem here you know which begs the question okay then what is the problem like why aren't these people eating these food sources anymore you know why is diabetes one of the most prevalent diseases in Guatemala now what's going on with that
3: I mean that's that's the million dollar question it does seem to be um when I look at countries like Guatemala, that there's been this kind of um, situation where the people have become bombarded with both advertising and a huge amount of of cheap food just being made available, cheap, low quality food being made available, and it's almost like sometimes I feel like this idea of like development, which is always talked about down in down in countries like Guatemala, it's almost like a way to turn producers who used to live a kind of a subsistence lifestyle, which you could argue isn't ideal. You could argue uh, there's a glass ceiling on the opportunities they have and all the rest of it. But what's largely happened here over the last sort of 50 or 60 years, it seems to me, is a lot of those people have been turned from producers into consumers. And now instead of producing food, they produce coffee or mass produce like one type of food which either gets exported or or, or sold on markets and subsist on kind of coca-cola and tortrix and and a bunch of other like really really low quality uh foods you know
0: yeah it gets kind of tricky and politically charged when you get into the base of the food system because there's a lot of culprits there's a lot of uh things that can be pointed to for blame and you know hopefully for solutions but this is where it gets a little bit controversial.
1: You know, Oliver, <laughs> I definitely like what you said about, about you know, trying to find blame because I think a lot of the time we get stuck on that. And I, I know I do, you know, the, getting stuck on the idea of blame and it's whose blame is it and is it their blame? Or then we say, okay, no, let's take responsibility. It's my my blame, you know. But really, that there there is no need for blame at all. What we need is really solutions, you know. So, yeah, I think that for me, that's a really big challenge that I'm facing right now of of realizing that we can't get caught up on, on the crappy things that are happening because there's enough downers in the world already, you know? So we really need to focus on, okay, so we have all these solutions, we have all these incredible foods and incredible mechanisms and we have the technique and the know-how and we're building the community with people like you guys and us. to to create the change that we want to see and then, you know, just really make it happen and and stop lollygagging and stop finding the perfect moment and the thinking that everything needs to be in the proper place before we can just go for it. And, And I think that for me, that's been a big lesson recently.
0: I love that you brought that up because it's something that we talk a lot about in the courses that we do through permaculture and natural building is that all of the elements don't need to be perfect for you to start making actionable steps. Uh, In fact, the imperfections of them are often where you do the most learning. I know this is something that you harp on a lot uh, as well, Neil. You don't have to have all the money, all the funding, all the materials or um, the circumstances don't have to be perfect, but you can make small steps and there's often... A lot of things that you can do which will be universally useful regardless of your climate, your context. Um, Shad talks about about this a lot in previous uh, interviews as well. Things like, you know, figuring out where your water source is, starting to propagate plants and put a vivero in. Even if you don't know exactly where on the landscape you're going to put them yet, getting started and taking a little bit more time to observe and interact but still make progress is... Very empowering for a lot of people who have otherwise been waiting or, like you said, lollygagging. <laughs> Very English term. Um, in order to to start the ball rolling.
3: Yeah, it's like I agree so much with what um, what Julie says. It, it's totally right because these these global scale problems are so daunting. And I feel like they leave a lot of people paralyzed. But also the truth, the truth of the matter is there's things that we're trying to figure out and resolve that we're just we have no idea what the answers are. Like some of these large scale problems, they're literally unsolvable from where we are right now. But, you know, we feel pretty confident in the steps that we're taking with Abundant Age. I feel super confident listening to the steps that uh, these girls are taking and lots of other people around the place are taking. And slowly the questions like, you know, how do we design, how do we come up with a sort of a more equitable economy that's fair to everybody? How do we solve some of these problems like making organic food available not just to wealthy people who can afford to buy it but to everybody i mean you could go on and on and on with the list of problems that there are to solve but we can't let those things sort of prevent action right now and we sort of have to trust that the steps we're taking will will take us in a place where in five or ten or twenty years we're ready to solve those next sets of of problems right
0: yeah absolutely and I think it goes along as to what you were talking about um, being inclusive and broad in the plan so you can be very idealistic in what your larger overarching goals are and start with something as simple as planting a garden or attempting to source some of your products and your consumption from more responsible and equitable sources. And you know, with the larger goal in mind, as you gain more resources, as you increase your reach, uh, your collaborations with more entities within the community, then you can start to bring in um, more more members of the community and take on more ambitious projects that are seemingly directly in line with those ambitions that you had from the get-go. But that shouldn't stop you from the small steps that it takes to get the ball rolling.
1: Yeah, definitely. Just taking action is a big, a big step, and I've been thinking a lot about how to get people to take action and how to inspire uh, people in general and and create that movement. And I, I've been thinking that often we want to convince people about what we want and the future that we foresee, and that. Doesn't really transfer well when you're trying to have a, you know, a, a really profound impact on somebody's psyche so that they themselves want to change something in their lives. And I, I was talking to my grandfather yesterday, the day before yesterday, and he's absolutely brilliant. I mean, he's 96 years old, he has read every interesting book that there is to read and the conversations I have with him are seriously the most awesome thing so if you have a grandfather out there definitely go chat him up because he's probably smarter than you are <laughs> but back to my point we were talking and he was and we, were, we always talk about these kind of issues you know we talk about you know why humanity is so sick and why everything is based on greed and why again and again we replay these same scenarios you know and he was like yeah you know the last person who tried to create change like this was jesus and then it was karl marx and all of these things always fail and i'm like yeah but you know why they fail because they think of humanity as a hive they think that we're going to i'm going to give something that i've worked for so the go- so someone else i don't even know can benefit and that just doesn't sit well with our evolutionary footprint like we're not that species you know w- where did we come from think of it as an evolutionary system we are tribal we're tribal beings we're only going to do things that are going to benefit our tribe but not some kind of an abstract individual that we have no connection to because we feel part of something grandiose and, and huge, like a bee. Like a bee is a part of a hive and everything that one bee does ultimately benefits the whole system and the bee isn't thinking like well where are my comforts and when am i gonna have access to a bigger cell you know like when am i gonna be able to eat some of that tasty stuff that the other person's eating you know like bees aren't thinking that but we are you know i i'm driving around in my in my car and i'm like like, oh that piece of land is so nice like when am i gonna get a piece of land like that you know like each of us has something that we want and I think that if we learn to speak to that tribal persona instead of the hive persona, we're going to get through to a lot more people. Have you guys thought about this? I mean, does that ring any bells?
0: I have. These are the types of conversations that we have all the time. and like, I think uh, this has been a fantastic platform because it's a great way to have these conversations among ourselves, but also include a much larger community of those of you who are listening. And I really hope that that is what people are getting from this. We don't pretend to have all of the answers. We're working on these and figuring these things out as we go. It's fascinating. It's uh, it's something that we all love to do and facilitates the conversation and the exploration and innovation towards something positive. Um, but definitely, it's an ongoing process. And the hope, the reason why we do this on a podcast and not just by ourselves in, in a house is because we would love to hear from you and hear some contributions, some feedback, ideas and experiences from all of you who are listening as well.
3: Yeah, it is it is such a, a good point about you know us having evolved to, we function in tribes. And I mean, I guess, is a tribe and a, and a beehive that different? I mean, they've got to have like a, a healthy tribe to me functions best when everyone is doing everyone is acting simultaneously in their own self interest and in the interest of the tribe right but on what we're kind of faced with now i think is that whether we like it or not the whole world is connected and the actions of people in one area of the world you know whether we want to or not influence everybody else so we are sort of faced with that thing where we do kind of need to make the whole planet into one tribe in how we, in how we think and act at least into, at least in terms of for me, kind of like this idea of it's such a cliche, but you know, thinking globally and acting locally, you know, it's like, I recognize that how I use energy and consume resources affects the whole globe. And that probably the most appropriate way, pr- appropriate way to address that is, um, is by, is by consuming as much local produce and energy as i can no
1: yeah definitely that's a good point that we do need to think globally in in the decisions overall that we make but i think this is the perfect moment to say that each person out there who's listening has access to their own small tribe people i don't have access to and people that i don't know and so that's more what i'm going to when i say tribe it's you know like you you could still be part of my tribe, you know, like we hang out, maybe, maybe, oh, sorry, Oliver, Oliver, you were invited to my tribe too. I'll consider you my tribe now. (laughs) I like you, so (laughs) this is, this could work, you know, but no, but seriously, if each person from a grassroots standpoint gets the ball rolling and does things that are immediate to that tribe, That's when I think that there's going to be movement, you know, because if I'm going to start thinking about what how my actions are going to influence someone in Australia, that's way too abstract. You know, like I don't even know what that means and it it doesn't inspire me to change, you know, it's like, oh, like if I don't throw this piece of trash somewhere in the Pacific Ocean, a fish isn't going to die, you know. And that, that doesn't move me. But what does move me is I'm going down the street. I'm looking at trash everywhere and I'm thinking of solutions. And then I act on those solutions, you know, like what are, what are building methods that I can use to use this trash as a resource? Let's do it now. You know, for example, I had this really cool idea. Let's see what you think. Um, using cement posts or quinine posts that Thomas has access to. Thomas is my husband that Thomas has access to. And then putting uh, chicken wire on both sides and then stuffing the center with un recyclable trash and using that as the bahareke method instead of using cane or adobe and that way and then just using plaster on the outside because the land that thomas bought has amazing resource for for fine clay material that i think we can use as the as the exterior wall to the parameter of our of our property you know like i see that now we're gonna try it out I'm, i'm already like storing up the plastic, and we're going to try it. You know, it's like, I see the problem. It's it's local. It's close to me. It affects me directly. Like, my drive home is full of trash. I need to find a solution for it. Now, I'm going to go for it. What do you think?
0: I think it's a very creative idea. And, uh, in fact, that's something that we've got to do a full episode on at some point is rerouting certain types of trash Out of the waste system and finding new creative uses uh, within a community to help, you know, advance the infrastructure and solve problems. I think things like that are absolutely brilliant. Um, And, you know, different people are motivated by different things. Uh, Like you mentioned, some people think larger in what they include within their tribe. I'm very glad to be included in yours now. (laughs) This is actually the first time that Julie and I are meeting in person. I've heard about her and we've done the, you know, the interviews in the past. But this is the first time I got to meet you in person. It was really fun. Um, But the larger point being that people are motivated by different um, kind of pressure points. You mentioned that your drive back home is something that is sort of glaring out at you and motivating you to find solutions for that thing. Um, and it really is a matter of figuring out how to move larger populations by discovering their motivation points. Uh, it's something that I'm constantly thinking about in order to help uh, advance the movement in a way that connects with people on an individual level as well
3: yeah i mean at some point i think we have to come clean on this and and be honest and say we are trying to create a sort of a cultural movement with with permaculture agroecology you know basic ecological thinking um because that's what humans have always done we've always uh that book sapiens um is a really good example of of, of yeah, analyzing the mythology of humans and how it's such an integral part to to how we construct our reality is is essentially by telling stories about it um and you know we are trying whether we kind of want to admit it or not sometimes it's uncomfortable but there's a there's this kind of cultural appropriation side right, to permaculture where we are clearly trying to use leverage points in how we communicate with each other how we tell stories how we construct our realities to change the value system of our of our culture we, you know right now we have a culture that says um that it's worth cutting down a standing tree because it gets you x number of pieces of paper with money on it. We, most of us understand that that's just an abstract value system and it can be changed and you could perhaps print money because uh, for every 10 liters of water that you clean or for every tree that you leave standing, there's, there's really no um, – there's nothing objective that says that the way we're doing things is the way we have to keep doing things. But what it does require is the sort of cultural narrative and the stories that we collectively believe in to change. And sort of the tricky thing about telling stories is, you know, I always look at those great Disney movies and and Pixar movies where they're enjoyable for kids and adults. There's a little bit of an element of that to it too, that when you're talking to people, you need to be aware that different people react to different pressure points. So, you know, when you're talking about organic agriculture, it can be a really good idea to go on about... The money you save by not applying chemical fertilizers if you're talking to someone whose main interest is economics. Um, Or it can be a good idea to talk about how a good holistic design can save you tons of labor by eliminating unnecessary tasks that you have to pay workers for. You know. And in a way that those things will not only be in, not interesting, but actually possibly jarring to someone who's more concerned with um, pulling carbon down out of the air and reversing climate change. And suicide from food system. Y- exactly what uh, you guys are doing, you're, you're appealing to people who are living probably mostly urban lifestyles at And showing them the health benefits that they can get. But all these different, all these different ways of approaching uh, the problem, the the real hope for me is that some kind of like cultural tipping point uh, gets created. And I really don't think we're that far away from it. Because when you actually look at this stuff, there are so many um, just advantages on so many different levels, right?
0: And this is clearly a topic that we can go endlessly down the rabbit hole on. We're starting to get a little bit abstract about the concepts of uh, communication, uh, cultural narratives and storytelling. But all of it is relevant when it comes to um, making shifts that have real impact on people's lives, not just something that gets caught up in in pop culture and uh, starts to motivate people based on what's fashionable. Uh, I, I think I speak for all of us when I say that if we make any change, we want it to be lasting and not just something that sort of passes with interest in, in something that's new and shiny. So, um, the, the intricacies in, in telling stories, but ones that will actually endure and that will inspire generations past us who maybe are dealing with very different problems within their environment, their societies, their governments, whatnot. Um, so any, any insights on that?
1: Well, just one quick insight that I think really matters to all of us is, is becoming aware of what resources we have access to, identifying these resources and then putting them into play because everyone does have something that they can start with. And for me, I think the idea of, of how we're tiny in a great gigantic cosmos puts everything into perspective and and just helps me not get caught up in in the mistakes. And when I do make mistakes, just see them as opportunities for, for betterment and change and creativity. And and I'm so thankful for the day and age that we we live in, you know, where I can pick up the phone and call Neil and ask him for advice, or I can call you, Oliver, and pick your brain about...
3: Now that we're all in a tribe, that is.
1: Exactly. Now that, now that I can call you, Oliver, and... <laughs> i'll get your number lady you
3: made the invitation official <laughs> yeah.
1: exactly oh my gosh you guys speaking of awesome projects and invitations my mom wants to create um a community like a a ecological beautiful community of like-minded people i think that we need to have a podcast about that
0: yeah definitely but uh I'm not going to publish this part. I'm going to edit this out so that not too many people join in and we get it, we get it on the ground floor. <laughs> Keep that on the down low. Um, no, it's it's remarkable. And and one of the the narratives that I've really caught on to in the past is that, you know, you do get a lot of pushback from opposing sides who don't like all of the things in the stories that we tell. And I, you know, I even have members of my family who, who identify as like non-environmentalists, which... You know, if you want to appeal to folks like that, if our species doesn't continue on this planet, that's fine. Like the universe is not going to miss us. If you want the species to continue, you can frame it as a selfish thing we want to go on because it's in our best interest. If if you want to break it down, if that's the way that it makes sense to you, you know, it doesn't have to be this altruistic thing that you're doing for the good of the planet and other abstract ideas, which are all fantastic. And I mean, those are motivations for me. But if, you know, you disagree for some reason for the political side of things that tends to get associated with that, be selfish with it. Like, do you want to keep living because when you realize that you can't eat your cell phone and that your water is polluted, uh, we're all going to be in the same boat facing the exact same problems.
3: Yeah, I mean I think the whole thing with this ho- this whole movement is take the politics out of it, you yeah. know. Oh, well, global warming is triggering to for some reason, you know, 40-50% of western populations because it brings up all these kind of political things and so much of the these political debates just lead to massive stagn, stagnation and no i don't know anybody alive whether they're republican or democrat or anarchist or whatever that doesn't want their kids to have access to clean food water and air and this is really all we're trying to do nobody's denying it whether they're a climate change denier or a flat earth theorist or a whatever they are you know Basic concepts like photosynthesis, trees pull in carbon and and turn it into, um, you know, sugar and oxygen. These are like well-established things. Plants clean water. Um, you know, so for me, it's like, keep the politics out of it. And you can have a very agreeable, I can have a very agreeable conversation with these types of things about a staunch with a staunch right winger or a, or a hardline communist or and find loads and loads of points that we agree on. And, and really, that's the thing, because every human that you meet, no matter how different they seem to you, I guarantee you, you have way, way, way more in common with them than, than you don't.
1: I just want to point out something Oliver said about how each person gets inspired by something different. And I think what inspires me most, and we are talking about this with Michelle earlier, you know, what inspires me most is that incredible beauty and, and just all that I feel when I'm in a natural setting in a forest. For me, it's forest. That really does me in, you know, like, I can just sit next to a tree for hours. And that there gives me all the meaning that i need to to pull through on the difficult moments and then touching based on something that neil said it's really once we are able to to move past our kind of conditioned political views or or whatever we can realize that that we can merge the past and all the knowledge that that resides there with modern technology and techniques to to just bring about something really new and creative and and find solutions for the things that we do have access to change.
0: Yeah, that's wonderfully said. And I think really we're kind of boiling it down to some very simple concepts here. And that's, you know, have these conversations, figure out what it is that motivates and works for you and turn it into action, whether or not the ideal circumstances are there, Um and, you know, I'm eternally grateful for all these people who are contributing to the conversation from whatever vantage point that they're at. And all of you listening in right now, very grateful for you for um, keeping the momentum going wherever it is you're based out of. We'd love to hear from you. Please feel free to contact us directly either through info at AbundantEdge.com or you can leave comments or private messages on our Facebook pages, either the Abundant Edge podcast or Abundant Edge, our Facebook page for the company as well. Um, I'll be putting links for everybody's contact and business information on the show notes for this episode. We're just about out of time, mostly because me and Neil need to get back to the lake before the final boat leaves and we get stranded in a different town. Not ideal. Um, but again, thank you so much for listening and contributing and being a part of this conversation. Regardless of where you're coming at it from, uh, we, we just want to include as many people in this as possible because it affects all of us and It's a lot of fun. (laughs) At the end of the day, we're having a blast doing this and connecting with other inspiring people doing magnificent work. Uh, So I want to thank you, Julie, Neil, and Michelle's already gone, she had to run, but I'm sure she says bye from, uh, from the road. And yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks guys, see you soon.
1: See you soon, hopefully, thank you so
0: much. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops that we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, Build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we all share. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at infoabundantedge.com. Or you can post your questions directly to the Abundant Edge podcast Facebook page, to which there's a link in the show notes of this episode. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you again in next week's session.